0: Hey, everybody. Welcome back. This is the Skeptical Ghost Heathen, and it is January 27th, 2021. And you are listening to Season 1 and moving on to Episode 6. Um, the title of this particular episode is The Agricultural Revolution, where we left off on Episode 5. Um, we started uh, getting into a little bit about the changing behavior and the changing of the diet in our ancient um, Homo sapiens. But... um the title of the show is going to be The Agricultural Revolution and the Rise of Early Neolithic Religions, as well as their churches. Um, so the topics that we're going to cover in this is basically going to be how the agricultural revolution changed man, how the diet changed the way that um, we, we, we handled ourselves in, in in the in the world you know what what dramatic changes took place from being just a, a an average you know hunter and gatherer and forager to all of a sudden um, being basically farmers, so how did that change things so this is going to be a pretty in depth look at um, how that really changed the mind and the scope and just the the day to day lives and activities of our human ancient ancestors. Um, and then some of the findings again. You know, this show is very much centered around archaeological digs and finds. And one of them is going to be a very significant find that um, I think that a lot of um, a lot of scholars believe is probably the first, the most ancient um, place of worship. So we're going to take a look at that. So, you no, know, without further ado, um, it's time. Let's fasten our seatbelts and our particular time machines, and let's do this. Yeah. Between 9,000 and 6,000 BCE kicked off the agricultural revolution and the rise of early churches and the Neolithic religions. The transition to agriculture began roughly around 9,500 years BCE in the hill country of southeastern Turkey, western Iran, and the Levant. You remember, you know, we discussed the Levant to kind of give you a little bit of a place on the map. This is basically Egypt. Uh, Israel, you know, where you see uh, the city of Canaan, and Jericho, and Jerusalem, and um, depending on the time, um, Assyria, I guess this would be Syria around this time, Um, but just to kind of give you a little bit of place on the map. But it began slowly, and in a restricted geographical area, wheat and goats were domesticated by approximately 9,000 BCE, and peas and lentils sometime around 8,000 BCE olive trees by around 5,000 BCE, horses by around 4,000 BCE, and grapevines in 3,500 BCE. and Even some animals and plants, such as camels and cashew nuts, were all domesticated even later, but but pretty much by about 3,500 BCE, the main wave of domestication was over. So the agriculture revolution really turned foragers into farmers, and, you know, lives generally became a little bit more difficult and far less satisfying than those of an ancient foreigner, forager. And, you know, the average farmer worked harder and, you know, the average forager, you know, got a worse diet in return. So, who was at fault for this? Was it kings? Was it priests? Was it merchants? No. The copper was a handful of plant species, including wheat, rice, potatoes, as a matter of fact. These plants, in fact, domesticated us, not vice versa. So, you know, we as apes, you know, discussed that already, don't make me clarify why we are the animal monkey species, but, you know, we as apes, we have been living a fairly comfortable life, hunting and gathering until sometime around 10,000 years ago, but then began to invest some more time and effort in cultivating wheat. So, within a couple of millennia, humans in many parts of the world were doing very little from dusk to dawn other than taking care of wheat plants. And it wasn't easy, you know. I mean, wheat demanded a lot of attention when you think about it. I don't know if any of you have had to harvest wheat, but, you know, wheat didn't like rocks. It didn't like pebbles. So our early ancestors, our, our early sapiens, broke their backs, literally broke their backs, clearing fields out. You know, wheat didn't like sharing its space, water, and nutrients with other plants. So men and women labored long days weeding under the scorching sun. Wheat even got sick so sapiens had to keep a watch out for worms and blight. Wheat was attacked by rabbits and locust swarms, so the farmers ended up having to build fences and stood guard over their fields at night. Wheat was also thirsty, so humans dug irrigation canals and lugged heavy buckets from a nearby well or a nearby stream. Sapiens even collected animal feces to nourish the ground, you know, of which wheat liked to grow. So, (laughs) ultimately, our bodies, or the bodies of our ancient ancestors, you know, had not evolved for such tasks like these. You no, know, I mean we were pretty much you gotta think about it, you know, we we're pretty much adapted to climbing apple trees and running after gazelles. Not clearing rocks and carrying water buckets. The human spine, knees, necks, and arches, huh, my feet. They they paid the price, man. But studies of ancient skeletons indicated that the transition to the agricultural um agriculture, excuse me, brought about a plethora of ailments. Um, slipped discs, arthritis and hernias. We we see we see this. We we have evidence of this and skeletal remains. So, moreover, the new agricultural task demanded so much time that people were forced to settle permanently next to their wheat fields for all the reasons, you know, that we had just mentioned before. So, you know, that that's a huge change from what we were when we were simply forgers and, and hunting. Now we're domesticating you know now we're building homes so this completely changed the way of life we did not domesticate wheat wheat domesticated us the currency of the evolution is neither hunger nor pain but rather copies of dna helixes just as the economic successes of a company is measured by the number of dollars in the bank not the happiness of the employee. So the evolutionary success of Spatians is measured by the number of copies in its DNA. If no more DNA copies remain, the species goes extinct like the Neanderthal. Just as a company without money is bankrupt, if a species boasts many DNA copies, however, it's a success, it's huge, and the species flourishes. This is the essence of the agricultural revolution, you see. The ability to keep more people alive under worse conditions, if you can imagine. The Homo sapiens had to overcome and adapt or or enter extinction like our Neanderthal brothers and sisters who could not adapt and duplicate um, DNA as discussed previously or genocide by the hands of us sapiens. It's always a possibility, right? We're kind of kicking that one around a little bit. Evidence seems to point that direction. But there is a great amount of evidence of settlements and even villages that were discovered throughout the Middle East particularly in the uh, Levant. Again, that's Jerusalem, Anatolia, Jericho, Syria. Oh, even Damascus, the road to Damascus, that great story with, uh, you know, we'll talk about um, St. Paul and his uh, revelation with Jesus. But, you know, this is all several thousands of years before nations wrote about their creation narratives. You know, those are about to come. But, you know, there's a whole world happening before all these nations started, uh, you know, creating the universe. But that's why... that's why I really hate to see all this stuff just kind of get forgotten about. It's important. You know, and there were, there were people living in the Levant, you know, not, not just Neanderthals, but there was a, a, a Natufian culture that flourished. Let me, let me say that again and spell it. It's N-A-T-U-F-I-A-N. The Natufian culture flourished in this region from 15,000 years BCE to 9,500 years BCE. This is a long time ago. Before that creation narrative ever took place, um, four thousand and four BCE, then a uh, huge flood some um, what twenty three thousand five hundred years ago. Not, I'm sorry, twenty three hundred and fifty years ago. Woo, that almost got real. But, but the but the the, the Natufians were hunter gatherers who subsidized on dozens of wild spices or I'm sorry species. Um, but they lived in permanent villages and they devoted much of their time to intensive gathering and processing of wild cereals. I, you know, I wish it was species, but we're talking cereals. <laughs> but they built stone houses uh, and granaries. They, they stored grains for times of need. They even invented new tools such as um, uh, tools for like harvesting wild wheat and stone pestles and mortars to grind it by. But by around eight thousand five hundred years BCE, the Middle East was, was peppered with permanent villages such as Jericho, who inhabitants spent most of their time cultivating a few dozen domesticated species. And by the way, in these villages they all owned and they loved loyal pets. Dogs. How about that? Even dogs were around before the uh the, the before the universe. But I believe that. I love my dogs. Um, If you're looking on page 44, I actually included a picture of, um, you know, the recreation of what the Natufian uh, culture may have looked like. Not the culture, but the individuals. And um, it might be interesting to take a look at, or you can absolutely pull it up on Google. But very, very dramatic features to what, you know, we look like today. But definitely heavy um, um, Middle Eastern appearances, you know, and you you only can imagine. But um, what I'm finding the most fascinating about this time is that there was a definite climate change on the earth, you know, shifting into temperatures that are very similar to what we have here today. And, you know, in the 20th century and agriculture became an integral, integral part of the civilization's culture that led for different styles of cooking. Domesticated animals were in use. We talked about our dogs. People started working with pottery. However, innovation and invention still took centuries with you no know, exception of stone and wood tools. But from a ritual and ceremonial perspective, what is really interesting is now we start to see graves beginning to take on contemporary appearances, even with grave markers. Some even made out of stone. However, um, the use of tools and idols and ochre-stained skulls along with the pottery became a normal standard practice throughout the Middle East, Asia, Australia, and Europe. And groups began to populate and grow and become large tribes working together on the land, along with along with hunting when they were hunting. Every once in a while, farmers got to eat a steak, right? So the idea of God's spirits and ghosts would become very popular and necessary from one tribe to the next. Sometimes they even, even borrowed from one another. Each village would have their own. This ideology grew within villages and became very ceremonial, especially the larger the group. So... So with the move to permanent villages and the increase in, you know, the need for increased food supply, the population began to grow, giving up the nomadic lifestyle. You know, this enabled women to have a child every year because we're not moving from place to place and trying to find, you know, the next great hunt or whatever, because now we're cultivating our own, our own wheat. We're harvesting our own, our own potatoes. So babies, babies weaned at an earlier age. The extra hands were very helpful and needed in the fields, of course, as you know, they grew up. That's one of the major reasons why we'd have kids. Somebody's got to work in the fields, ten of those fields. Somebody's got to go out there and fetch a pail of water and, you know, get, get the um, you know, the get get the plants nourished. But the extra mouths quickly wiped out the food supply, so even more fields were needed to be planted. So now that we're building these villages and we're harvesting fields and we're You know, cultivating fields and harvesting potatoes and wheat and, you know, grains of different sorts. Um, Well, we have to have a place to worship, but imagine, you know, we've got all these gods that we've been, you know, imagining. And um, these tribal spirits that we've been sharing among communities. So in 1995, archaeologists began to excavate a site in southeast Turkey, and it's called the Göbekli Tepe. It's spelled G-O-B-E-K-L-I. New word T E P E. So in the oldest stratum or section of this Göbekli Tepe, this st- monumental structure, they discovered no signs of settlement, houses, granaries, um, fields, any sign of any kind of daily activity. Is this out there on its own? They did, however, they they, they found monumental pillars, you know, structures decorated with spectacular engravings please pull it up in google um i I will i will tell you the um page number when i get to it i believe you're going to see it on page 46 47 somewhere around there but each stone pillar weighed up to right around seven tons how they moved the dang thing and they reached a height of 16 feet so there is there is like this nearby quarry that they found half chiseled pillar weighing around 50 tons That's, that's just crazy but altogether they uncovered more than 10 monumental structures and you can see these when you go online and take a look at this thing. It's amazing. But the largest of them is nearly 100 feet across. 100 feet! Archaeologists are they're familiar with such monumental structures from sites around the world, such as Stonehenge in Britain, dating back some 2500 BCE. But yet, as they studied the Gobekli Tepe, the structures are dated some 9,500 to 12,500 years uh, before the Common Era and all available evidence indicates that they were built by hunters and gatherers. The archeological community initially found it difficult to correct these findings, but one test after another confirmed both. Both the early date of the structure and the pre-agricultural society of the builders. The capabilities of ancient forgers and the complexity of their cultures seem to be far more impressive than was previously suspected. So you have to ask yourself, why in the hell would a forging society build such structures? How did they build such structures? You know, we talk about the pyramids too. But they had no obvious, you know, utilitarian purpose. They were neither mammoth-slaughtering houses or places to shelter from rain or hide from lions. That leaves us with the theory that they were built for some mysterious cultural purpose. Or cult purpose, Maybe. Only a sophisticated religious or ideological system could handle such a group effort like this, you know, such as pyramids. This was quite possibly an area that was built for rituals and ceremony to take place. Perhaps the gods or the spirits and the ghosts deserved much greater forms of worship, did they? Perhaps taken to the spirit of the deer or to the rock of the tree wasn't enough. Was this the first church was this the first church to be erected by sapiens? Or aliens, perhaps? I think that we'll see this in the Great Sphinx erected in Egypt also around this time. We'll take a look at that. But I'm thinking that, you know, this was probably the first church that was or just a place of worship that you know, again, we talked about our ancient forgers. You know, they 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 did they, they they worshiped the deer, they worshiped the sun. You know, they worshiped the moon, they worshiped that tree that provided shade, or they gave thanks to it. You know, they prayed to it. They 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 prayed to the rock, they prayed to the stream. So maybe when we're starting to get around at this time, you know, getting getting closer to that twelve thousand, ten thousand years before the common era, um, they started transitioning this, you know, this 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 these prayers to a a structure. They they needed to have a structure, but why was it so far away? Why was it so, it's like 20 miles away from the nearest settlement where people lived. But left behind, you know, for us to take a look at, you know, the the skilled archaeologists, you know, they were able to go and they found clay figurines, mostly phallic and feminine. You know, we we talked about the uh, Venus of of Willendorf. Um, You know, this is a, a, a type of, Figuring that we would see through and through and all the way up and through the, uh, um, you know, the first to the fourth century um, in the common era. But, but there seems to be early stages of paganism here. The development of gods and perhaps deities to be worshipped and create stories about. But we'll see this type of phenomenon happening thousands of years to come. So now I am looking at the pictures. It is on 47 and you can you can see how much earth they had to... The, um, you know, uncover to get down to see this thing, but there's amazing engravings. The the amount of time, the amount of energy, the amount of labor that they must have spent in building this thing. It's incredible. Now, the Gobekli Tepe here, it held another secret, you see. For many years, geneticists have been, you know, tracing the origins of domesticated wheat, but recent discoveries indicate that at least one domesticated variant, einkorn wheat, Originated in the um, in the hills, just less than maybe twenty miles from the Göbekli Tepe, so this can hardly be a coincidence. It's likely that the that the cultural center of the Göbekli Tepe was somehow connected to the initial domestication of wheat by humankind, and of humankind by wheat. In order to feed the people who built this monumental structure or structures, particularly these lar- particularly large quantities of food were were required. You can imagine. We can even see this in the pyramids which you'll we'll talk about later. There's even, you know, a hospital built nearby for when the, when the slaves were maybe crashed, you know, or crushed between rocks. It, it may well be that, you know, the foragers switched from gathering wild wheat to intense wheat cultivation. Not to increase their normal food supply, but rather to support the building and running of the temple. In the conventional picture, pioneers first built a village when it was, you know, when it prospered. They set up a temple in the middle, but the Gobekli Tepe suggests that the temple may have been built first and that the village grew later around it. So, you know, the Cultural Revolution is one of the most controversial events in history. Some proclaim that it set humankind on the road for prosperity and for progress, where others insist that it led to perdition. This is the turning point you see, where sapiens cast off its... You know, it's it's intimate symbiosis or interactions with nature and, and sprinted towards the, the greed and the alienation. Whichever direction the road led, there was no turning back, that's for damn sure. But farming enabled the populations to increase radically and rapidly that no complex agricultural society could ever sustain. And around 10,000 years before the Common Era, before the transition to the agriculture, Earth was home to about, maybe between 5 and 8 million nomadic foragers. By the first century of the Common Era, only 1 to 2 million foragers remained, mainly in Australia, America, and Africa. But their numbers were dwarfed by the world's 250 million farmers. So the vast majority of farmers actually lived in permanent settlements. Only a few were nomadic shepherds at the time. Settling down caused most of the people's turf to shrink dramatically. It's kind of like moving into a a, a track neighborhood, you know, living in a track home. Ancient hunters and gatherers lived in territories covering many dozens of miles. Their home, in, you know, air quotes, was an entire territory at the time. We talked about this earlier. Going out for 5, 10, 20 miles, going out hunting, gathering. Every day, 20 miles, No, no, no big deal. They spend all day out there. But now the typical peasant farmer developed a very strong attachment to, air quote, my house. And separation from the neighbors became a psychological hallmark of much more self-centered creatures. The new agricultural territories were not only far smaller than those of ancient forgers, but also far more artificial. They cut down trees, they dug canals, they cleared fields, they built houses, they plowed furrows, and planted fruit trees in tidy rows. So, the resulting artificial habitat was meant only for, for humans and their plants and their animals, their dogs, and was often fenced off by walls or hedges. You can picture it, the little white picket fence, right? 10,000 years ago. But people found it very difficult to leave these small fortresses that they erected. They spent all this, I mean, that's where you keep your stuff. You know, you you hear George Carlin talking about his skit about, you know, the house is just a place to keep your shit. (laughs) But, you know, they could not abandon their houses or fields or granaries, you know, without the grave risk of loss, you know. You move out, you you, you go out for, you know, you disappear for a few days, another family might move in, another pneumatic family. Furthermore, at this time, went on, you know, they accumulated more and more things to put inside their houses. Ancient farmers might seem dirt poor, but a typical family possessed more artifacts than an entire forager tribe. <laughs> I, I can't stop hearing the uh, George Carlin in my head, but from, a very, you know, from the very advent of agriculture <clears throat> and the agricultural revolution, worries about the future became imminent, you know, where, where farmers depended on rains to water these fields. Peasants were also worried about the future because it was the foundation of large-scale political and social systems. Sadly, the diligent, you know, peasants almost never achieved the future economic security they had craved so much through their hard work and, you know, to their their work and persistence. Everywhere rulers and elites sprang up, living off the peasants surplus food and leaving them with only bare substances. These fortified food um, surpluses eventually, you know, fueled politics, wars, art, philosophers. They built palaces, they built forts, monuments, and temples. By the modern era, 90% of humans were peasants who worked for their land to feed the kings, government officials, the soldiers, priests, artists, great thinkers, the churches, All the people who filled the history books? So between 9,000 and 2,000 BCE, during the the bringing on the Iron Ages, um, we start seeing, as we just left off, the rise of kingdoms. So the, the food surpluses produced by peasants, coupled with new transportation technology, eventually enabled more and more people to cram together into the, you know, into the first of the large villages, then into towns, and finally into cities. All of them joined together by new kingdoms and commercial networks, if you would. Yet in order to take advantage of these new opportunities, food surpluses and improved transportation were not enough. The mere fact that one can feed a 1,000 people in the same town or a million people in the same kingdom, does not guarantee that they can agree how to divide the land and water, how to settle disputes, how to settle conflicts, how to act in times of drought or even war. And if no agreement can be reached, strife is spread. Even if the the storehouses are bulging, bulging with wheat and potatoes and grain. Oh my. It was not... It was not food shortages that caused most of history's wars and revolutions. The French Revolution was spearheaded by affluent lawyers, not by starving peasants. The Roman Republic reached its height, height of its power in the, what, the first century before the Common Era. When, treasures, when, when treasure fleets from throughout the Mediterranean enriched the Romans beyond their ancestors' wildest dreams. Yet, it was that moment of maximum affluence that the Roman political order collapsed into a series of deadly civil wars. For an example, Yugoslavia in 1991 had more than enough resources to feed all of its inhabitants, and it still disintegrated into a terrible bloodbath. So the problem at the root of such calamities is that humans evolved for millions of years in small bands of just a few dozen individuals. You know, we're talking about not just Homo sapiens, but Neanderthals and Homo erectus and um, chimpanzees. The handful of millennia separating the agricultural revolution from the appearance of cities and kingdoms and empires, it simply wasn't enough time to allow for the instinct of mass cooperation to evolve, right? Despite the lack of such biological instincts, like, you know, during the foraging era, hundreds of strangers were able to cooperate thanks to their shared myths. However, this cooperation was loose and it was limited. Every sapien band continued to run its life independently and um, you know and, and to provide for most of its own needs. Stories about ancestral spirits and tribal totems, they were strong enough to enable you know, good five hundred people to trade seashells celebrate the odd festival, and join forces to wipe out Neanderthals, but no more than that. But mythology, an ancient sociologist would have thought, could not possibly have enabled millions of strangers to cooperate on a daily basis. But that turned out to be wrong. Myths, as it transpired, are stronger than anyone could have ever imagined. So when this agricultural revolution opened up opportunities for the creation of crowded cities and, you know, you can imagine these and mighty empires and, you know, people began inventing stories about great warrior gods. Great warrior gods that kings would pray to before the battle or or perhaps to a fertility god to ensure growth of the kingdom or crops or even the health gods to oversee the wellness of the kingdoms and to provide huge social links. That's key, provide huge social links, I say. So these new and powerful gods of nations and kingdoms coexisted with with, with, the, with the small insignificant village spirits and ghosts. Farmers and foragers continued to pray to the, to the deer god or to the deer spirit or to the tree or to the rock, you know, be, the deer before the kill or to the tree or the rock by the river. They still got to do that. Even come to sophistication of massive cities in the Iron Age Thousands of gods would be worshipped, and every one of them, different from city to city, kingdom to kingdom. There were no problems with everyone having their own independent gods. Why, why would it be an issue? We'll, we will see this in the great nations of Assyria, with the god Ashur, the Babylonians with Marduk, the Sumerians with Baal, and Egypt with Osiris. While human evolution was crawling at its usual snail's pace, the human imagination was building astounding networks of mass cooperation, unlike any other ever seen on Earth. So, around 8500 BCE, the largest settlement in the world were villages such as Jericho, which contained a few hundred individuals. By 7000 BCE, the town of Catehoyuk in Anatolia numbered between 5,000, 10,000 individuals. It may have very well have been the world's largest settlement at the time. During the fifth and the fourth millennia before the common era, cities with tens of thousands of inhabitants, they they, they sprouted in in, in the fertile crescent. And each of these held the sway over many nearby villages. By 3,100 before the common era, the entire lower Nile Valley was united to the first Egyptian kingdom. Its pharaohs ruled thousands of square miles and hundreds of thousands of people. Around 2250 BCE, Sargon the Great forged the first empire. The Akkadian Empire, that is. I'll learn more about that. But it boasted over a million subjects and a standing army of 5,400 soldiers. Between 1000 before Common Era and 500 BCE, the first mega-empires appeared in the Middle East. The late Assyrian Empire, the Babylonian Empire, the Persian Empire. We're gonna learn about all these guys, all these kings, all these gods. They all ruled over many millions of subjects and commanded tens of thousands of soldiers, and each with their respective gods. Gods as in plural. In fact, in in 221 BCE, the Qing dynasty united, you know, China. And shortly afterwards, Rome united the Mediterranean basin. Taxes levied on 40 million king subjects paid for a standing army of hundreds of thousands of soldiers and a complex bureaucracy that employed more than 100,000 officials. The Roman Empire, at its zenith, collected taxes up from uh, 2 to 100 million subjects. This revenue financed a standing army of 250,000 to 500,000 soldiers, A road network still is in use 1,500 years later, and theaters and amphitheaters that host spectacular spectacles to this day. Impressive as it sounds, mass cooperation networks operating in Egypt or the Roman Empire was not always voluntary and seldom egalitarian. Most human cooperation networks have been geared towards oppression and exploitation, to be honest with you. The peasants paid for it by by expanding cooperation networks with their with their farmed food surpluses and despairing you know and despairingly you know when the tax collector would come and wipe out an entire year of hard work, so you know the famous Roman amphitheaters were often built by slaves so that the wealthy and idle Romans could watch their slaves engage in you know vicious gladiatorial combat even even prisons and concentration camps were you know those are cooperation networks as well that can function only because thousands of strangers somehow managed to coordinate their actions together all these cooperation networks from the ancient cities of Mesopotamia to the to the king dynasty and to the roman empires were all imagined orders based on a belief in gods and there's stories that people can relate to, such as the Jewish God choosing the Jews to be the, you know, to be the chosen people, the chosen people of Israel. Israel belongs to them. So the social norms that sustained, you know, that sustained them were based on neither, or you know, ingrained instincts nor personal acquaintances, but rather they believed in a common shared myth. Shared myth being their their gods. So how can myths sustain entire empires? Well, let's examine the best known myth of all, the best known myth in history, the Code of Hammurabi, which served as a cooperation manual for hundreds of thousands of ancient Babylonians. In 1900 BCE, Babylon was the world's world's largest city. In fact, the, the Babylonian Empire was probably the world's largest next to the Assyrians, and the the Assyrian Empire, which that. What more than a million subjects? It ruled most of Mesopotamia, including the bulk of modern day Iraq and parts of the present day Syria and Iran. The Babylonian king most famous today for this code was Hammurabi. His fame is due primarily to the text that bears his name, the code of Hammurabi, it's right there on the steel. So this was a collection of laws and judicial decisions whose aim was to present Hammurabi as a role model for a just king, you see the air quotes above my head. It would serve as a basis for a more uniform legal system across the Babylonian empire and teach future generations what justice is and how a just king should act. In fact, the intellectual and bureaucratic elites of ancient Mesopotamia canonized these texts, and apprentices, apprentice scribes continued to copy long after Hammurabi had died, and his empire will even lay in ruin. Hammurabi's code is therefore a good source for understanding the ancient Mesopotamians' ideal of social order. So we will see similar codes written in another 1,300 years, with the um, imagined laws of Moses again with the air quotes, and we see this in the Ten Commandments and you know the 600 laws by Moses but all by virtue of the supreme Jewish God Yahweh, Yahweh of Israel, which takes much from Hammurabi's code, as we'll take a look at. But these codes will serve the Jewish people of Israel as the code of Hammurabi served the people of Babylonia. The texts begin by saying that the gods Anu, Enil, and Marduk, the leading deities of the Mesopotamian pantheon, appointed Hammurabi to make justice prevail in the land, to abolish the wicked and the evil, To to prevent the strong from oppressing the weak? It then goes on to list about 300 judgments, like Moses' 600 judgments and laws, given in the set of formula that basically specifies, goes kind of like this. If such and such a thing happens, then such judgment should happen. So for example, I'll just give you a couple of them here. So number 196 um, that you'll see on the steel. If a superior man should blind the eye of another superior man, they shall blind his eye in return. Okay, sounds familiar, right? And then 197. If he should break the bones of another superior man, they shall break his bone. And can't go on again, it goes on again. If he should blind the eye of a commoner or break the bone of a commoner, he shall weigh and deliver 600 shekels of silver. <laughs> okay, so the list goes on and on. It sounds like this. But after listening to his judgments, Hammurabi again declares that these are the just decisions which Hammurabi, the able king, has established and thereby has directed the land along the course of truth and the correct way of life. For I am Hammurabi, the noble king. I have not been careless or negligent towards humankind, granted to my care by the god Enil, and with whose shepherding the god Marduk charged me. So Hammurabi's code... It basically asserts that the Babylonian social order is rooted in the universe and eternal principles of justice dictated by the gods, you see. So I think this is all kind of coming together now from what we talked about, how our early ancient ancestors, you know, looked to the rocks and to the trees and to the river and to the deer and how it turns into this big thing that would become You know, the the, the laws of the universe, you know, know, given to us by these, these great gods. But the principle of hierarchy is of a paramount importance. According to this code, people are divided into two genders and three classes. You've got superior people, you've got commoners, and then you've got slaves. Members of each gender and class have different values. We see this. We also see this in the, in, the, in the Jewish Bible, we see it in the Talmud, we see it in the Torah. But the life of a female commoner is worth, you know, 30 silver shekels, and that of a slave woman, 20 silver shekels, quite, quite significant of a difference there. whereas the eye of a male commoner is worth 60 silver shekels. The code also establishes a strict hierarchy within families, according to which children are not independent persons, but rather property of their parents. Hence, if one superior man kills the daughter of another superior man, the killer's daughter is then executed as punishment. (laughs) To us, it may seem strange that the killer remains unharmed, whereas this innocent daughter is killed, but to, to Hammurabi and the Babylonians, it seems perfectly just. Um, Hammurabi's code was based on the premise that if the king's subjects all accepted their positions in the hierarchy and acted accordingly, the empire's millions of inhabitants would then be able to cooperate effectively and efficiently, for for, for that matter. But their society could then produce enough food for its members, distribute it efficiently, protect itself against its enemies, and expand its territory so as to acquire more wealth and better security. So this code is best known, or the way that it's displayed, is from a steel. And that's spelled S-T-E-L-E. But basically, basically, it was like this huge black granite piece of rock you would imagine of uh, black diorite. <clears throat> it's actually, if you want to look at the image, it's on page 54 of the essay. Or you can absolutely just pull up the code of Hammurabi and um, and perhaps the word steel, as I just spelled out for you. And it should pull right up. But it's beautiful. But... Um, about well, seven feet tall, and it actually now is displayed in the Louvre Museum in Paris. <clears throat> this still was actually found at the site of Sousa, which is basically modern day Iran today, by excavators who were led there by um, Jacques de Morgan, sometime around the beginning of the 20th century, an excavator there. So scholars believe that it was brought to Sousa actually in the 12th century BCE by an, a um, Elamite ruler who subsequently erased a portion of it in preparation for creating an inscription of his own. You know, you can see he's trying to scribble out Hammurabi's name and, and, and put put in his own. But, you know, this is actually pretty common practice among rulers, to take their enemies' trophies and their valuables back home and put into their own display case. You can imagine, you know, you're a dignitary coming to, coming to the Lamite kingdom, and you're coming into the Lamite palace, and... All of a sudden you see this big glass display case and it actually has perhaps the coat of Hammurabi, the steel there, amongst others, perhaps a head or two. But originally Hammurabi would have displayed this steel at the site of Sippar, S-I-P-P-A-R, which is now currently modern day Iraq, if you would picture the geography. But likely in a prominent temple where he would have most likely displayed proudly other steels or collectibles taken from other kingdoms that he conquered. Some Assyrian kings are actually they, they've been known to proudly display the heads of those kings and perhaps those generals as well, perhaps pickled in a jar atop of a shelf for all to see in ancient times. Sippar was the home of the son Shamash, and at the top of the steel you actually, it actually shows an image of Hammurabi before this god with rays coming from Shamash's shoulders. Scholars widely believe that other now lost steels. Have existed in other cities in Babylon that were now, that were actually um, controlled by Hammurabi as well. So, again, go back and look at those images if you can. And um, I think that I'm going to start wrapping this one up. I think we're probably exceeding that 40 minutes, so I'm going to try to be done with this one though. But I think this one was uh, probably a real important. episode as we transition into going into the migration of the chosen people. Obviously, we're going to start talking about the Jews and all of their gods. (laughs) I know that sounds astounding, but we're going to talk about the Jews, the the pre-Israelite religions and all of their gods, all of their deities, all all the things that they believed in before we know what we know today or understand what we know today. So um, wrapping this up, um, we'll do a little recap on the next episode, but I hope you enjoyed this one. And again, if you want to shoot me an email, please do. That is ghost, or I'm sorry, it is skeptical underscore ghost underscore heathen at yahoo.com. Uh, I look forward to talking to you about any of this if you want. Let's get some shares. Please pass this along to anyone that you think that might find this interesting um, and wants to talk about it. All right. Take care. Have a great day. All right, we just concluded episode six in season one, The Agricultural Revolution and the Rise of the Early Church and Neolithic Religions. Have a great day, y'all.